An intoxicated 56-year-old woman is in a motor vehicle accident. She's brought to the emergency department in pretty rough shape. She's immediately resuscitated and during the rapid evaluation, a CT scan from the head down through the neck, chest and abdomen looking for internal injuries is completed. And they find some injuries. They find that she has a skull fracture. There's some bleeding around the brain, some broken ribs. There's a tear in her liver. There's some blood that's pooled in the abdomen. The chest also shows some infiltrates or shadows, likely collections of some blood. There's a half inch lung nodule near one of the broken ribs and she's taken to the ICU pretty quickly for further stabilization. There she needs some blood transfusions and because of deterioration, she's brought for emergency surgery to stop the bleeding around the brain and the abdomen. Once she's stabilized, she's placed on a ventilator and she has to stay there for about three days. She needs antibiotics for pneumonia. She has several days of poor kidney function, but gradually and gratefully she starts recovering. After two weeks in the hospital, she's transferred to a rehabilitation facility to regain strength. And because her thought processes are a little slow as she recovers from her head injury, she needs various kinds of therapy. They find out that she's really not made regular use of healthcare. She's a smoker. She occasionally becomes intoxicated with alcohol. She's been hospitalized once before for pneumonia about five years ago. During rehabilitation, it's discovered that she has some high blood pressure issues and she gets started on some medications for that. She also gets started on some ulcer preventing medications. And then after a couple of weeks, she's dismissed from rehab. At dismissal, she's given instructions to follow up with her primary care provider, which of course she didn't have. But after a visit's completed, a couple of months after discharge, they find that her electrolytes, her blood work and her blood pressure are all back to normal. They recommend some general preventive care, things like a mammogram, a colonoscopy to quit smoking. They recommend that she has her cholesterol checked, but unfortunately she does not keep these appointments. And about three years later, she presents with right-sided chest pain. Now a chest X-ray shows a mass where that lung nodule was seen in the emergency department a few years ago. The workup finds that it's an advanced stage lung cancer with spread to the adrenal glands and some bone. And it's now clear that that nodule in the CT chest years ago was probably a lung cancer, but no one followed up on that incidental finding. Of course, it was mentioned in all of the radiology reports, but the surgeons were frankly quite busy saving her life. The intensive care doctors were busy trying to help her survive. The rehabilitation doctors were busy trying to help her regain her function and return to regular life. And the pulmonary nodule was just not that important to the care at that time, right then. But in retrospect, it would have been really important to follow up on that finding after she was recovered from all the emergency services. Unfortunately, this case, not precisely an actual case, but not far off of several cases we're familiar with, is not uncommon. When x-rays are done for one reason and you find something unexpected, those are called incidental findings. These incidental findings are far more common than you might guess. About one-third of all CTs performed in an emergency department will have at least one incidental finding, and most of them will be benign or of no importance, but some, like the one I described in this case, represent an opportunity to intervene early and prevent bad things from happening later. Some studies show that only about 10% of these incidental findings make their way into dismissal summaries and even fewer receive follow-up. Today, we're going to talk with two Mayo Clinic champions who've been working on this problem for quite a number of years to help us learn how to ensure that the right follow-up on incidental findings occurs. Welcome to Key into Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast focusing on healthcare quality, patient experience, and affordability. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler, the Vice Chair of Quality at Mayo Clinic, and co-hosting today's conversation is Sherry Nemec. Sherry, 
Hello, I'm Sherry Nemec, Consultation Relationship Manager for Quality at Mayo Clinic. You know, Dr. Morgenthaler, that story you just shared was so impactful, and it really highlights how important this work is. Yeah, and I think it's both something that patients fear, and frankly, all of my colleagues in healthcare mm-hmm. fear this as well, because, you know, nobody gets up in the morning and says, gee, I want to uh, make a mistake or have a misadventure, and certainly nobody wakes up and says, gee, I want something missed. So uh, really glad that we have some some champions here. These are dear colleagues of mine. I've known them for many years. Today's guests are Dr. Susan Cullinan and Joe Nino. Sue, tell us a little bit about your role at Mayo Clinic. Practice primarily in Eau Claire, but the hub sites also are surrounding that area. Also was on patient safety for many years and still sit on quality and mortality review. So Joe, tell us a little bit about your role at Mayo Clinic and, you know, when did you first come to join Mayo Clinic and those things? Sure. So I've been in this role about 15 years in some form or fashion within patient safety, I'm currently working in our enterprise patient safety office. And so special projects just like this that really impact all of our organization. Thanks so much. How long ago did this project start? I think at least three years formally. But prior to that, we had been looking at projects along the way. So I, even before that. Yeah. Maybe, Sue, could you tell us, how did you get started on this project? Well, the story you gave is a, is exactly the story that kind of just hits you home. I mean, it just hits your heart. And in patient safety, we hear about these stories and, and did hear about some of these stories and these misses, and it's just so tough and it's, it's hard to deal with. And after a couple of these, we decided this has to be taken care of. We have to do something. We have to figure out how to do this better. I think with patient safety and... Um, RCAs and reviews, it was important when we saw this, that we get this figured out. And we realized no one really had a good process. And some people were working on it in certain sites, but not everybody, and nobody was doing the same thing. So that, that got us thinking about it. Sue and Joe, I just want to give our listeners a little background uh, so they understand the context of how these sort of things develop at Mayo Clinic. Many of you who are listening may think of Mayo Clinic as you know one facility, but there's actually, Mayo Clinic is a healthcare system. We have 22 hospitals. Sue works at one up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and I work in Rochester. We have hospitals in five different states, and there's a large community that's served up in the upper Midwest. And so what Sue's alluding to is that this problem is one that's uh, very pervasive. You can talk to anyone at any facility, and they'll tell you that this is a problem. And so many of our hospitals independently were working on different ways to deal with it. And what really sort of happened here is that Sue, because of her senior leadership position, and Joe, because of his position with enterprise patient safety, started working together on a project that was going to be applied across our entire system rather than each little facility doing its own thing. Sue, how did you decide what your main goals were? And so we know why you got started. How did you get started? We put it on the patient safety top 10 list. I don't know if you remember that, Tim, but this was important enough that we said, this is a top 10 work that we just really need to get done. So when that started, we started looking around to see who was actually working on this. And we did find areas that had started processes and they had people working on this, so it wasn't mixed. And that was an important start. I think our main goals when we looked at it is we really want the patient aware. If the patient's aware, they can do something about it. And we found that that wasn't happening. That was number one. Number two, the ordering provider, because like you said, they're just as sad and unhappy and worried if they miss something. So we really wanted the ordering provider to be aware. And then last but not least, the follow-up provider, the patient's primary care provider. So those three were our top goals. Make sure they were aware of this finding. I'm going to ask you, you know, why did you pick those three? There's some thought processes that went on there. I think we just 
boiled it down to who really needs to know and who wants to know, and they can do something about it. And many of these cases, the patient didn't know. Many cases, even the ordering physician didn't know. And so you could see where the follow-up did not occur. So we just boiled it right down to those three. If they're aware and we have multiple ways of letting them know, this won't get missed. I'm sure this work needed to involve many, many people. So Joe, can you talk a little bit about how you engaged other people to get the project going and off the ground? And then what collaborations do you think have been critical? Yeah, absolutely. So as Dr. Cullinan indicated, we're not one location and one spot. We had multiple people working on this, perhaps from different angles. And so kind of the first step was to find out what was going on out there, what work was being done already, and really engaging with those people because they have been working on this for, as Dr. Cullinan indicated, some of them years to kind of refine their specific process. So getting that background and then really from an enterprise level, engaging all of those gaps. So, uh, you know, radiology, ordering providers, and, and not only the clinical side, um, but then also because of our electronic health record, we have our clinical informatics and also really important to map out the process. So we engage our health system engineers and project managers. So Dr. Cullinan said that the formal project has probably been at least three years, but are there some key insights, Joe, that you've had or discovered along the way? Yeah, and I think we've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but it's really, there's no one golden process. We have patients that are here for hours. We have patients that are here for months. And so as we have communication gaps, handoffs, you know, change of care and dismissal, there's really a, a twist or turn to each one of these cases that we really had to look at and make sure that we were including those in our process flow. Joe, what, as you're talking, uh, what's coming to my mind, uh, some of you may be familiar with James Reason's model for how errors occur with multiple layers of Swiss cheese. And what you're really saying is there's not one fix that's going to fix this. What we need is multiple different opportunities to intervene and make sure that this piece of knowledge about this incidental finding is not lost. Did I kind of read that correctly? Uh, very accurate. Yeah. Sue, you were going to say something. There were so many pathways once we started. There was the inpatient pathway. There was the emergency medicine pathway. There was the clinic pathway. If a patient was seen by a resident or if they didn't have a non-Mayo follow-up, all these just diverged our main work. So we had to really think about all the different areas that we had to cover. So maybe you could describe for us, Stu, part of what stimulated this conversation was the announcement that um, a large part of this project was accomplished just recently. So tell us, what is the system that we now have as a result of your team's work? Well, I think we have a great system. It starts with radiology, reading the finding, putting it into CTRM, which is a tracking mechanism. And when that pops into CTRM, if I've ordered the case, let's say I've ordered a chest x-ray, I will get a pop-up, a BPA pop-up, which will alert me. So I'm aware as the ordering provider, I'm aware of this BPA and this pop-up in, in Epic. We use Epic. And so it pops up in Epic and I can, at that point, can go talk to the patient. I can let the patient know, and then I can also schedule the follow-up. It also goes on the patient's discharge instructions. Later in the course, it will also pop up on the patient's portal. And if they don't have a portal, they'll get a letter. So a lot of redundancy, which I think is really important. And we purposely put that into the system. So the patient would not find out. They would find out about this. Just to kind of elaborate for those who, you know, may not be kind of in the process, you know, so as a pulmonologist, I've certainly ordered my fair share of CT chests and I might've been looking for a PE. And then it turns out there's an incidental finding. 
of course, I'm reading the read of the radiologist. I mean, if I ordered it, it's ex expectation that I would read their in interpretation. And frankly, I look at the films too. But this is a redundant system that also alerts me to the fact that there's an incidental finding of note, you know, because one of the cognitive biases that every person, every human on this planet is born with is the bias that comes from attention. I'm thinking about PE. I did the test for PE. The pulmonary embolism, that's what a PE is, was not there. So I'm kind of like, check. But oh, there's this other thing that was really not in my mind. It's very easy for me to overlook that unfortunately, which is why you've built in this redundant system to say, no, in addition to that, Dr. Morgenthaler, here's something else you need to pay attention to. Is that kind of how it occurs to me? Exactly, exactly. And we want it to happen automatically. So if you aren't focused on it, it will still happen. That follow-up will still occur. And that's the important part because it usually isn't what you've ordered the test for. I mean, 90% of the time, it's not what you've ordered the test for. You're not looking for an incidental finding. So they're usually not critical. Right. So it's by very definition, it's by incidental. definition, exactly. So, <laughs> so it's really important that this is followed up with because most people are not focused on that. And even though they see it and read it, it still gets put to the side. And just to kind of approach this from a patient's point of view, God forbid I've been in an automobile accident. I go in and I have this whole thing. I mean, when I'm discharged, I'm glad to be alive. I'm probably hurting. I'm probably wondering how am I going to get back to work? What's happened to my house? All kinds of things. I may not be thinking about this incidental finding, which I never planned on seeking out information about this thing to begin with. So that's the reason for the follow-up notification sometime after my discharge to say, hey, this was also important. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. The letter, the portal, and also that your primary care provider knows so that when you have a follow-up with them three months later, they can bring it up and it will probably jog your memory and get the appropriate follow-up. Well, wow. Uh, Joe, I've got a question for you. How many people do you think at Mayo Clinic might be impacted by this project? Yeah, so certainly as part of this project, we looked back at the retrospective data. So if this process were in place two years ago, how many times would have the process been triggered or begun? And so what we gained from that was at a minimum 4,500 patients. Um, and is, so, is that 4,500 just in Rochester or is that across the enterprise? So uh, enterprise data, and again, we know national data indicates there's a, a higher percentage of you know, incidental findings on radiographic images, but to actually trigger and start the process. So, and, and again, that's a minimum, but really looking at throughout the whole process and the fact that it does rely on a lot of reminders and good catches, uh, for lack of a better term, this really comes down to each individual patient and making sure that the process works each time. Mm -hmm. So how does that make you feel that you're doing something that's going to potentially benefit 4,500 patients in a year? You know, if it helps one, I'm happy. Yes. That is all I need is one person to get improvement. But if we can it's, get 4,500, awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. That's that's fabulous. Yeah, it's really incredible. And Dr. Cullen or Joe, either one of you that wants to respond to this one, but is there anything that you anticipate that you need to work on yet or uh, any next steps that you want to share? I think um, one area that we would like to focus more on is making it more automated. The more we can add AI to this, again, you know, just going through to making sure we're not missing any nodules on the initial read, I think that would make it even a more sound process. And I would agree with that. The AI and natural language processing aspect is something that we want to bring in to the next phases of this um, and really solidify the process from end to end. I'm just projecting a little bit there. One of my colleagues in uh, 
the Division of Pulmonary Medicine here, Tobias Peikert and uh, uh, some colleagues in radiology have actually produced a AI powered program that not only will identify the nodule, but then we'll do some analysis to tell you the likelihood that that nodule is malignant versus benign. And I think that kind of next step, uh, which I'm really looking forward to here at Mayo Clinic, is going to be so important because right now the system that you've described is such an improvement over all of the uh, systems before. But now that I have knowledge, uh, let's say the other end of the hospitalization or the ED trip, that there's a nodule here, there's still a lot of medical decision-making that has to occur about what am I going to do about that? We're not going to go biopsy every nodule. In some areas, especially in the Ohio River Valley or up here in the upper Midwest, a lot of those are scars that are not malignant. So there's a whole nother set of medical decision-making that happens after this. A lot of times when we have our conversations with our guests, we like to ask this question. So I'll invite both or either one of you to share on this one. But I'm an organization just really wanting to get started on this work around incidental findings. What are some initial steps that you might recommend? I think finding out what your current state to find out what your gap is, is really important. Um, we found a lot of places already working on processes and we utilize some of that the ways they were doing it and the benefits that they'd already come up with, we utilize that with our process. So I think that would be a very good first step. And number two, I would not do it alone. I would involve, make this multidisciplinary, get radiology involved, get IT involved. I think what that was the downside to every little group doing it is you just had segmented areas working on it. And it's a lot of work. We found that out. <laughs> I could carry on this conversation for a long time because you're fascinating and your work is just inspiring. And I'm hoping that our listeners have also been inspired by the work. You know, what a great accomplishment to uh, engage with uh, great colleagues and come up with a system that might affect more than 4,500 patients in a good way. And I think that's probably why a lot of us get up and go to work in the morning is because we are looking for opportunities to do something like that. But we have to draw to a close. So uh, we've come to the end of our podcast. I'm really glad you could join us. I hope the information that you provided is insightful and valuable to our listeners. Again, Mayo Clinic's Key into Quality podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps to address important quality challenges and safety challenges in your organization. The development of this podcast is part of our effort to be a valued resource to healthcare organizations that are striving to improve. Our goal is to improve quality for the patients and the populations that we all serve. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help us by rating it on your podcast platform. Also, let others in your organization know about it so the information can be spread. Until next time, goodbye. 